Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Nahad, and thank you, all of you, for taking the time to come here. It's nice to see some familiar faces and some new faces. So thank you so much for taking this time. And I'm just going to... Aha, okay. So this is Razal Khaimah. This is my home, and this is a place full of superheroes. There are captains who survive shipwrecks. There are shipbuilders who survive lightning strikes off the Malabar coast. And there are honey collectors who scale mountains and ward off bees using just sticks and ingenuity. And there are entrepreneurs who came to a strange land and they made it their home. So for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Anna. I'm a reporter still at the National Newspaper. And I moved to Ras al when I was 13 years old. I came with my mother. She was an instructor at the higher colleges of technology. She taught accounting and what was then called e-commerce. And we came from British Columbia, Canada, which is a very green place. So she promised me we would stay two years, three at the most. When we came, this was Ras al downtown. This is a current photo, but that was the downtown. It's where we went on the weekend. If we needed any food or vegetables, if you wanted to get clothes, you went to the tailor around the corner from there. And that was a popular spot to go and eat because it was one of the only spots to go and eat. It was dusty. Ras al was dusty and it was hot and the mountains had no trees. And I hated the boys in my school. And I did not like Ras al I did not like it one bit. But then things changed and I began to really love it. And I stayed, as you can see. <laughs> um, Jeff Topping and I met on assignment for the National Newspaper in 2008. And our book, People of Ras al was published last Ramadan with support from the Ras al government. Now, when Jeff and I first met, his very first words to me were, how can you live here? It reminds me of Kashgar, he said. It's all dust. Well, that day we went up the coast to Al Rams and we shared coffee and we shared stories and tea and songs with some fishermen in Al Rams. And at the end of the day, Jeff told me he was moving to Ras al immediately and did I know a local real estate agent. In the fall of 2014, we received a seed grant from the Al-Qasimi Foundation, and um, we began work full-time on the book. We did this full-time over the winter and spring. We interviewed about 55 Emiratis and long-term residents who had, most of them had witnessed the transition from a pre-oil economy. And we spoke to people all over the Emirate, not just in the city, and we tried to make sure they were representative of the four geographies, sea, desert, mountain, and cityscape. It was important for us in photographs and texts to have the opportunity to go a little deep because as academics, I think you have that privilege, but on a newspaper, you're usually working on a deadline. You might only have an hour to interview somebody 
Uh, you might only get to meet them once. You might not even get to meet them face to face. So this project was an opportunity for us to sort of spend a little more time. Additionally, in the Emirates, uh, people are very gracious here and they want to give thanks. So usually the first 20 minutes of an interview are sort of in this ritual of gratitude. And of course, time is very fluid in Ras which is great because it means people might be available for an on-the-spot interview, but it also means the best laid plans could get cancelled at the last minute. We were also very aware of the importance of, um, for some people, interviews can be tiring, especially if people are elderly, so we wanted to give that a little space. Some people we knew before we started the project. Uh, some people I'd known since childhood. They were the parents of my friends in some cases. Uh, some people Jeff and I knew from the national, from being on assignment. And um, some people were put forward by their community or just Jeff met a lot of people on the street just by walking around. And sometimes people knew exactly what they wanted to say and interviews took one quick sitting. Other times we would sit, sometimes for days, with people. This is a photo of Ahmed Rukait and Salem. They are the uh, two sea captains from Ras al-Khaimah and the father and father-in-law of my friend Hessa, who was a student of my mother's in the 1990s. So Ahmed Rukait, who's on your left, he kept a very detailed diary of what it was like to be on the sea at that time. And when I did the interview with him, he actually walked into the room. He sat down and he gave a very detailed account of how he and his father survived a shipwreck off the coast of Oman in 1958. He had all the names, all the dates, every detail you can imagine. And then he told me of a few other ships that had perished at sea that year. It was a very bad year for typhoons. And he stood up and walked out of the matchless. He was done. <laughs> It was very quick. He knew exactly what he wanted to say. He knew exactly what he wanted to tell me. Now, Salem and I, we met three or four times. We probably spoke for five or six hours. And he wanted to tell me about every instance of life as a mariner. He wanted to tell me how you could cure uh, possession by jinn at sea, where things can be a little trickier, and how you could sneak gold past the British in Mumbai, but it might be a different approach in other places. Um, and so, uh, you know, by giving the time and giving the space, we, we heard a lot of new stories, some that uh, often family hadn't heard before, even with people we already knew quite well. And my favorite example of this is with Mohammed Bouhaji. Now, Mohammed Bouhaji is a well-known man in Ras al-Khaimah because he ran the Dow Yard, which was booming in the 1950s, but even it was active until very recently. And I knew him because I was kind of his neighbor. And also, every time he built his last big Dow, we would be sent out there on assignment. And every Dow was his last big Dow. <laughs> so we'd had the good fortune to interview him a few times. But uh, nonetheless, I felt it was important to spend the time to sit with him. And we sat with him for three days. And one of the things I like to do when I interview is to give uh, sort of space. And also, I will sometimes return to a question if I feel people are still sort of considering the answer. And the question I had with Buhaji was, why did he leave the sea? Not everybody loved life 
at sea. There are people in our book who really hated it and never want to set foot in the ocean ever again. But Buhaji loved it. And yet he left when he was only 30 years old. And this didn't quite add up to me. So on the third day, when the timing was right, I returned to this question. Why did I leave? said Buhaji. Lightning. Lightning can hit you any time. I couldn't walk for a month. So what happened was, uh, he was hit by lightning off the Malabar coast. He lost the use of his legs temporarily. And when he returned to the Gulf, his father said, that's it. You're becoming a shipbuilder. Ocean days are done. And I think he still very much missed the ocean. So this is why a process like this uh, needs time. And through this process, certain patterns emerge. Now, a lot of people who read the book take different interpretations or see different themes. These are three that really struck me. First, we see how Emirati and expatriate women have a long history working both inside and outside the home. Now, I knew before, of course, about women's tremendous workload in the domestic sphere. I admit, as a journalist, I think I had a bit of a blind spot to how much they contributed in public life as well. Um, I hope this project is just a reminder about those who set the precedent for the role of women we see in the UAE today. It didn't come out of nowhere. This is Maryam Salam Saeed. She worked on the wheat harvest in the mountains alongside men, so in the same space. This is Fatima Musaba. Now, like many women her age, she tended goats. She ran all over the mountains from the age of about eight. She didn't own a pair of shoes until she was 17. She still remembers the names of a formidable number of goats through the decades. And Jeff photographed her at this tree, which at that point in time, she was still napping under on a regular basis because she just liked to be outside. This story I mention because even a few weeks ago, I was in Ras al talking to people before the FNC elections saying, you know what? are some of the concerns or discussions you'd like to see in the coming weeks. And some people from an area very near where she's from were saying, well, we want to make sure that Emirati or elementary schools stay segregated because it's not in our tradition for boys and girls to be mixing at that age. Well, she was running around with boys at that age, working together. Um, and then there's women like Maryam Al-Zaabi, who managed the household when men were away for months and sometimes even years at a time. Mary made Bokor perfume, which is what you see in her hands here. She did telly, she did other handiwork. She also would go to Dubai in a Jeep taxi along the shoreline. And in Dubai, she would buy earrings and necklaces and elastic bands and thermoses and bits and bobs, and then head back to Ras al-Khaimah and sell these from her house. In Miriam's words, men traveled. My husband dove for pearls, and he'd be gone four months every year. Then the days of Kuwait came, and all the men went to Kuwait. When I married, it was the days of diving. The men went to dive, gave us money, and that was how it was. One year, the men traveled to India in the wrong season, and when they arrived, they could not return. They were stuck there for maybe a year. It was no problem for women here. We were in our houses, we, all t we were all together, and we could help ourselves because we were all one family. We all held together. 
What one didn't have, her neighbor would give. The whole neighborhood shared in whatever they did. That's what you call the frige. A second theme is just how robust golf culture is. Although this project documents disappearing trades, it's also evidence of continual cultural adaptation and the agency of people in the Emirate. Consider Ali Rashid. He made a very good living doing videotapes, as you can see behind him, of the camel races, which was a response to new technology in what was, you know, essentially a new sport with new funds. Um, and who here has been to the Al Dafra camel beauty pageant? That's it, come on guys. <laughs> well, I hope inshallah you get the chance to go this December. It's like the best week of the year in the UAE. And if you do go, even if you don't go, you don't have to worry because the whole thing happens on Snapchat. Okay, so like what he's doing here, that's still happening today. I bet this year it's probably happening on TikTok. I don't know, I missed the one last year. Or you can take the lavish wedding styles popularized in Ras al-Khaimah by Esmet Bader, who came in the 1970s fleeing the Iranian revolution. So if you've been to an Emirati wedding, especially a few years ago, you'd know that big updos and makeups became an essential part of the Emirati wedding. But these styles weren't always there. They're probably going out of fashion now. And originally when she introduced them, the police showed up on her doorstep. Black magic, reports of black magic. So you'll all be aware of this much quoted statistic, Emiratis make up 11% of the UAE population. In Ras al-Khaimah, where Emiratis make up a larger share, fear of cultural erosion, also this really deep nostalgia for the past or romanticization of it, it's largely absent. And culture and modernity are easily reconciled, as are cultural imports, which are absorbed into new traditions. My favorite one in my daily life, maybe not daily because of diabetes, who here drinks karak? Really, guys? Okay, so karak, if unfortunately you don't know, you will have the chance. It is cardamom milk tea. It's a variety of chai masala, and it is everywhere nowadays. So if you don't drink karak, you're in luck. You are in the age of karak. Um, it is literally on every street corner, but it wasn't always so widely available. In Ras al-Khaimah, Mohammed Kalam Kandi was this genius mind that had the idea, instead of doing a cafeteria with food that also serves tea, let's make a cafeteria that does tea really the best chai karak. And also it will have, you know, sandwiches and cornflakes and ragag on the side, but primarily it's tea. Now, he opened Malak al-Karak, the King of Karak cafeteria, 2004. It became so popular that very quickly, I do recall there was a rumor going around that there were drugs in the tea, definitely. Definitely this is not the case. <laughs> and, uh, even during the course of our interview, I saw cars come around multiple times for multiple servings, just as we were talking. Now, this popularity of karak cafes, of which in this neighborhood, I might add, there are now at least 20 in a very small neighborhood in Ras al-Khaimah, this led to 
a new art called rounding. Have any of you heard of rounding? Sawi dawar, Yani? Okay, I see like two hands from my friends. Uh, fair play to you. But rounding is like, it's this Khaliji art. I would say it is Zen-like of driving around for tea. And you're socializing in the car. You're socializing with other cars. And as if by magic, you're even socializing wordlessly because you're interpreting the license plates of the other people. You're interpreting their music or their style of car. And you're getting all of this information. It's very social. And I know what some of you might be thinking. Oh, yeah, I did that when I was young. Okay, this is not for young men. This is not for just the youth. This is something we all do. Many nationalities do it. Many uh, ages of people do it. It can be a solo venture. It can be a family affair. But again, this all kind of revolves around the act of going for chai karak. So like camel racing, rounding for karak became a modern tradition. It's very distinct to the Gulf and particularly in the Emirates. I haven't been in another place that really does rounding in quite the same way. So sometimes we hear the Emirates as a place where culture is endangered by modernity or westernization or globalization. It isn't endangered, it's morphing. And that's what robust cultures do. More recently, we see national imagery highlighting Bedou or Bedouin heritage, like camels and falconry and sadhu, which are representative of Abu Dhabi Emirate and the desert regions. But um, this can sort of eclipse the pluralism of what we have in the Emirates. So is a camel necessarily more representative of the country than the Brahmin bull, which is what they use in Fujairah because it's mountainous and camels aren't great in the mountains? When we think of national language, what do we think of? Are we only thinking of Arabic? Or are we thinking of Urdu or Swahili or Sokotri or Malayalam? Uh, all of these languages are spoken as mother tongues by people, Emiratis, in this book. And another example would be uh, when we were working on this book, at that time, around 2014, there was a big push in government offices to say national dress code. Women's national dress is the black abaya. It is the black abaya. As you can see from the cover of our book, it is also a lot of different colors and not exclusive to the black abaya. So in the last decade, as the country has defined and by necessity constrained definitions of national identity, it's important to ask ourselves, what is missing when we look at UAE identity and culture? And importantly, who is missing? So this brings me to the third theme of immigration. And specifically, specifically, the commonalities of the migrant or immigrant story, regardless of where people came from or uh, when they arrived. Nearly everybody in the book spoke of the bareness of the landscape when they came, whether it was in 1966 or 1994. People not only cried about the pain of separation from loved ones, but about the sheer emptiness of the place. Now here is Majid Awad. He's a Palestinian engineer who came to Iraq around 1966. First, he ended up in Amal Kuwain because there were no street lights and the driver never went to Iraq. <laughs> but when they eventually made it to Ras al-Khaimah, he was very excited to wake up in the morning and see his new home. He told me, 
I was waiting to see Razlachema. I was shocked because there was nothing around me. Nothing. The houses were of palm. I was shocked, shocked to see this because I came from Kuwait that had everything, cities and everything. <laughs> Now, even people who came decades later describe their arrival in very similar terms. Shahed Mahmoud came in 1988 and he told me, the first time I saw Ra's al I said, oh, I have come to the jungle. I was crying too much. Oh, my friend, where am I? Why am I coming here? I went to the bathroom to have a cigarette and cry. Even me, when I came with my mom in 1997, I remember standing on the street corner in front of Shoitrim Supermarket, our only supermarket, UAE Exchange, a little stationery store, and the Taj Mahal restaurant, one of our only restaurants, and just seeing dust. The streets were deserted. It was one o'clock in the afternoon. And maybe for you, even if you've arrived in Abu Dhabi comparatively recently, you might feel the same thing. Uh, you might say, oh, Reem Island was nothing when I came. It was only a construction site. Oh, Khalifa City. It was empty when I came. The only place to eat was La Brioche. So it's amazing to me how so many of us have this identical narrative. Another commonality was nearly everyone who came intended to stay two years, three at the most. Uh, and this changes when the emirate becomes home, and it becomes home because of the people. Our book is not only the story of migrant workers, who honestly are scarcely migratory at all, but it's also the story of the Emiratis who welcomed them and were themselves often migrants before the you know, oil industry took off. In the UAE, we're taught to think of ourselves as temporary. Immigration is unofficial. So there's always an expectation from ourselves or from family that we'll eventually move on. Today, it's popular on social media for people to say, I'm based in Dubai or I'm based in Abu Dhabi. But we live here and many of us stay and we stay for generations, which gives reason to reflect on the terminology we use. What do we mean when we say migrant or expat? What impact does this have on how we invest or engage in a place? A sociologist, Rana Al-Mutawa, notes, people wouldn't go to New York and speak to a taxi driver who had immigrated or a Bacala owner and say they don't count as a New Yorker. I'm occasionally approached by people overseas who want to interview elderly Emiratis, which is great. Um, Sometimes when I suggest that if they're doing a national country profile, they might include multi-generational residents, I'm told, oh, no, no, we only want locals, real locals. Well, who is a local? Dividing who counts undermines connections between us, and it contributes to a myth that we're here as temporary workers. Modernity has arrived, and life is perhaps more isolated than it was. Public schools now segregate Emiratis and foreigners. Ras al-Khaimah, like other UAE cities, has really shifted into the suburbs where things are far more segregated by nationality and income than they were just a couple decades ago or even one decade ago. And this is how modernity plays out anywhere in the world. In a few years, those who saw the country step into modernity will be gone, many having repatriated after decades in the UAE. 
The German philosopher Walter Benjamin said, the delight of the city dweller is love, not at first sight, but at last sight. So this project was our love letter to the people who made the Emirate home. Thank you. After you. Good evening. Before I came to the UAE, I was a contract photographer for the New York Times and Reuters News Pictures for 15 years, based in Phoenix, Arizona. Arizona is similar to the UAE in one regards, and that has a significant desert region called the Sonoran Desert. That begins in northern Mexico in the state of Sonora and moves through the southern half of Arizona. It's occupied mainly by cactus and other desert vegetation, saguaro cactus, acatillo, and teddy bear or jumping choya cactus, like the ones in this scene in the lower Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona. It's still hot in this desert region where it can reach up to 49 degrees Celsius in the summertime. So it can be a very hostile envi environment. There's a big migration uh, process from Mexico and Central America through Arizona. And there is a number of deaths due to this hostile environment in the summertime. And in the wintertime, the temperatures drop significantly as well, so it can become a pretty hostile desert. So in run, one regard, Arizona has a very large desert area, and it's much different than the Dunefield Desert here in the UAE. I'm going to discuss some of the photographs from the book and how I approach photographing the subjects and which ones I chose to, to show you tonight. The Hajir Mountains are some of the most beautiful mountains I've had a chance to experience. They're very rugged, uh, sparse of vegetation, jagged edges, but they are good for climbing and hiking. And they're very similar to the mountains that I lived in in Arizona. So in many respects, when I'm up in Roslokema and hiking about the mountains, it reminds me of my home in Arizona. Sometimes I know when I'm making a photograph, I know how the light is going to affect the subject at any particular time of day. Sometimes you have to wait a little bit longer than others. At this sunset, I found this point uh, that was a little bit elevated but it was the perfect scene that I wanted to get for that particular day. The time that you have to spend some time waiting to make a photograph can be five minutes, it can be 10 minutes. In this instance, I was at, approaching it at sunset, so I had to wait for about 45 minutes before the, the light hit it perfectly with a nice glow on the mountain. Now in photography, we call this God's light or the perfect light. And when you are able to capture that moment, it's very gratifying because you can't make a photograph better than that. The mountains are perfect for climbing and hiking. And Barbara Coldry, who lived in Iraq for about 16 years, spent many months hiking in, the, in this mountainous environment. It's important 
to show a person in their environment, whether it's a work environment, it's a recreation environment, but to show something that is important to them and makes them who they are. So I wanted to take her to one of her uh, more favorite places to hike, just uh, south of Russell came out a little bit. It shows how strenuous these mountains can be, but how inviting they can be also for any outdoor activity. When you're working on long-term projects uh, like this, you have to spend a lot of time scouting a location. So uh, we talked about different areas and I drove around looking for the right, uh, right uh, photo point to, to spend time with. When you're working on long-term projects like this book, uh, you come across many different regions in the UAE. You come in the mountains, the sea, and the desert. This is off the uh, Emirates Road, and I walked maybe a kilometer to where these camels were being herded back to their farm. I look for different shapes and different forms when I'm out in the desert, how the dunes are shaped by the wind. And in this case, with moving objects, I look to see how they're moving across the frame, usually from left to right. The um, first frame here gives you an idea of what I was looking for, where through here you can see all these camels somewhat in a roundabout ca caravan. The two camels here, I wanted more separation from the photograph. I wanted to show more of a line of camels wandering through the desert. So the second one comes a little bit closer to what I'm looking for. You have more separation. You can see, you can see the trail of camels go, going through here and even back here in the background. But it still wasn't exactly what I wanted. There's still a lot of empty space here and that needed to be filled with something. So this is the end result of what I was looking for. And the, the object that makes this the picture is this guy right here with his neck and head. If he wasn't there, you'd have a large empty space here, which would be void of any activity. And you just, it wouldn't make the photograph prop properly. So as you, your eye follows this, caravan of camels back through here and that was that's what I finally ended up making again when you're working on projects like this you never know what you're going to come across and when you're going to come across it in old rack I was walking around one night as I did in many occasions trying to find a photograph just a feature photograph something that would tell you about the neighborhood or about an individual if I came across someone that was interesting as I turned a corner I saw this man in this uh, electrician shop working on an alternator he's got generators he's got other electrical motors fans etc and I, I like the lighting in the picture and just the solitude of him spending the evening working on uh, part of this equipment. I made a few photographs and as I always do, once I was finished, I found someone who could uh, translate for me and I, 
introduced myself, told him who I was and what I was doing. And we went and approached him and I asked him if he would be willing to be interviewed for a book. And he said, yes, which was an answer that we got several times. And aside to this uh, incident, um, when I was through photographing him, I heard a voice call my name and I turned around and there was this lady standing there and she says, are you Jeff Topping? I said, yes, I am. And I said, who are you? And she says, well, I'm Barbara Coldry. You're going to be photographing me. So a lot of times being a photographer, you come across little moments like that, being out on the street. Shahid Mahmood owns uh, Good Morning Gent Salon that he started with his father in 1989. Now, being a barber shop, as you all know, they're usually pretty small. And he's, uh, Shahid is the perfect uh, person to be a barber. He's jovial. He likes to tell jokes. He likes to communicate with his customers. And since it was a very tiny room, I didn't have too many places that I could be to photograph him. So I had to climb up on a chair, push my back against the wall to get as wide a view as I possibly could. And as you notice, there's a little curvature up here at the top of the frame and down here at the bottom. And that's because of the use of a fisheye lens, which gives you a 180 degree angle of view. And in tight places like this, you need that kind of lens because I wanted to show the entire environment. I wanted to show the customers. I wanted to show the barbers. I wanted to show Shahid. And in order to do that in this small space, that's what I had to use. Now, you have to be careful when you're using this lens because you can overuse it. The distortion can become too great and it becomes more of a novelty item after a while. Part of the job of being a photojournalist is being patient. And in this particular case, I had to spend about 30 minutes just waiting for the right moment, waiting for all the elements to be in the frame at the same time. Sometimes Shahid wasn't in the frame. There was maybe only one barber chair full. Maybe a barber had gone into another room to shave someone. Uh, but after a period of time, it all came together and made the photograph that I was looking for. The next two photographs, I used the fisheye lens on the second photograph I'm going to show you. But I'm showing you these to show what is a good photograph and what is more of a mediocre photograph. This one is not particularly interesting. It's shot during the noon, high, high sunlight, very harsh light, uh, kind of a flat scene. It's more of a document. It's not something that you can really use in a photo book such as Anna's and I. Um, it can be used more in uh, like a travel vehicle or a pamphlet or say a textbook. And it's a very limited angle of view. I didn't have a fisheye lens with me that day, so I made something more for a reference point. I came back a second night and with my fisheye to capture more of the harbor as much as I could. There's another thing, you notice the blue light in the sky here. It's a kind of an inkwell blue. 
And if you hit the sun, if you are there at the right time of day, just a little bit after sunset, you get that nice shade of blue. If you're there too late, then the sky just turns all black. The second night I was there, that's what happened to me. I got there too late. So I had to come back a third night resulting in this photograph, which when the sun sets, you have about three to five minutes of that perfect light. So I was taking a frame about every, every 20 seconds or so. Now you've seen this picture before. I photographed uh, Mohammed Buhaji, who was a dow maker for more than 50 years. And Anna and I have worked on a couple of stories about him. I've got two photographs of him. This one, I didn't really like what I was able to accomplish on this. It's not an interesting photograph to me. It's more of, again, of a, a document. You can tell that he's a Dow maker or Dow's have been in his life by him holding the picture. But it's, it's well composed. It's got nice lighting, but it doesn't tell you very much about that individual. And one of our jobs is to show something about that person, whether there's something that means a lot to them or, again, show their environment. Now, he was very ill and tired at this time, so I couldn't take him outside of his house. I couldn't take him to another location to photograph him in a more interesting setting. So I let him sit down and rest for a little bit, and I was trying to think of what, how else I could photograph him. It was kind of a challenge. So... All of a sudden, one grandchild started, came into the room and sat down next to him and wanted me to photograph her. So I made a few frames. And then the next thing I knew, here comes another grandchild, and then another one, and then another one. And finally, there were eight grandkids sur surrounding him. And it's not always often that you get a group of individuals with all their eyes open, perfect expressions, showing a lot of emotional love for their, their grandfather. But I was fortunate enough to have this happen in this photograph, and I really like it quite a bit. Now, Muhammad Ashik started Ashuk Ice Cream in 1975 and has turned it into a well-established business. How many of you have had the ice cream? All right. The others who haven't had it, you have to go to Rack. You have to have it. It's very delicious. Um, sometimes things don't go right when you're making a photograph. You have equipment problems. Your lights don't work. Uh, you have weather-related problems, or there's that theory of Murphy's Law that comes into being where anything that can happen does happen. On the first night that I photographed Mohammed, uh, that thing did happen. He was wearing the wrong clothing. It was very white. It was very bright. And there wasn't any separation between the foreground and the background. So I asked him if he would come back a second night and wear darker clothing, something like this gray or black or a dark blue. And I you try to use just one light and one softbox and one reflector. It's a location lighting kit that I use, kind of minimalist. But in this case, I had one light and one reflector on Muhammad. And then in the background, I set up light on the 
uh, the workers on the left and the workers on the right, just to, to give some separation and so that the background wouldn't be totally black. Another thing as a photojournalist, you have to do your research. You have to know something about the person or the story that you're going to photograph or the subject of the story that you're going to photograph in advance. It helps speed things up and you are able to decide how to photograph someone and where to photograph them. It's always best to know a lot about your subject. So beforehand, I read Anna's story and discovered that uh, Hussein Mohammed used to practice his bagpipe on the Corniche before he became a member of the Rack Police Band, which he is now captain of. So I drove along the Corniche and looking for the right outcropping that would take me far enough away from shore and still be able to walk a, a short distance so that I, he wouldn't have to walk very far to his location. It's very important to scout around to find your location in advance. That saves a lot of time for setup, saves a lot of time of the subject uh, not having to wait. So when I found the right location, I set up my light, got ready, asked a couple of uh, laborers if they would pose for me, set the lights right, everything was set. So I came back early the next day, set it up again. And when Hussein was reached the uh, location, he had this bright red brand new uniform. He hadn't even worn it except that day. And this is a result of that. There, as you can see right here, there is a little, that's a reflection of the softbox on my light. So we had a light over here, and then there was a reflector over in this area, just filling in a little bit of his face, which Anna was uh, nice enough to help me with. Anna helped me a lot on a number of assignments assisting. One thing you learn to do uh, photographing people or any kind of subject is you look for details, whether it's a, a tattoo on a person's arm, uh, it could be a small item this, that this person uses a lot in their life. Uh, for Fatima Masaba, uh, a goat herder in her younger days, to me it was her hands, they show a lot of strength, they show, definitely show a lot of history and a lot of life. And you saw a, po a portrait of her earlier in Anna's presentation. To me, this is a more telling photograph than the portrait of her. So whenever I'm out po photographing about, I look for these little signs, these little details about a person. When I was in the States photographing for Reuters news pictures, I shot a lot of sports activities, whether it was football, soccer, baseball, hockey, basketball. So when I was coming back from Algiers one day after photographing, I spent, I saw this scene of laborers on a weekend playing volleyball. And I pulled over for a few minutes and they pretty much ignored me, which was good. And right here in the center, this is what we call peak action. It's that moment where 
there's nothing more that the players can do to make it any more exciting. You have them both jumping high off the ground. One's trying to block the shot of the other one Why the why this gentleman here is trying to score a point. It's important, too, that during this project, I would introduce myself to everyone. And in this particular case, when I was through uh, photographing them, I went up, I introduced myself, I asked them if they, if they had any objections to being used in a book. None of them did, so I was very fortunate to, to have that happen. Now, when I met Aisha Hassan, I wasn't sure if she liked me or if she wanted to take my camera and smash it to the ground. She's a very imposing looking figure, very strong physical presence to her. I photographed her several times in her house, different areas of her house, different rooms. We walked outside, photographed her walking her land. And then I saw a bench on the side of her house and I asked her if she would go over there and sit down and I make a simple photograph. And it really is a pretty simple photograph. It, pretty much things like this, you just let the subject make the photograph. All I did was point the camera and hit, hit the shutter button. But um, I definitely would not want to make her mad. But she was very generous and so we had a good time. The I was lucky enough to make arrangements with the uh, RAC police force to ride in their helicopter for some aerials. This was the last bit of the book that I needed to accomplish. You can't get the scope of an area or a building or uh, a residential area from the ground as well as you can from the, from the air. There was no way I could photograph Al Jazeera Alhamra in the same way or even get the scope of the project from the ground as I could from the air. Now, with the RAC police force, they were very gracious in the amount of time that I gave, they gave me. I flew over Alger, Al-Shams, Al-Rams, through the city center, up into the Hajir Mountains. We went south of the RAC airport to a village called Al-Sadi and over some desert dune areas along the Corniche, and finally at Al Jazeera Alhamra. And for those of you who don't know, it was a big fishing and pearling village before the 1960s. When the 1960s came, people started moving towards the city and the uh, village eventually became abandoned. Some of it has been renovated, the rack, uh, RAC government has their annual arts festival or had an, their annual arts festival in, uh, this year in part of the renovated village. It's a beautiful area. And if you ever get a chance to go visit it and walk through the ruins, it's, it's quite something. The Nikhil district is one of my favorite districts in uh, Russell Kama. It's vibrant on the weekends. There's lots of activities. There's lots of cafes and restaurants. There's luggage shops. There's electronic shops. There's a movie theater. And there's lots of people that flood the area for shoppers, nightly entertainment. Uh, an area like this and also an old rack, I just like wandering about to see what I can find. Uh, I walked for several minutes and 
you saw an earlier picture of the Punjab restaurant. And I was walking around the corner and I made those photographs. And then when I was all finished, I turned around and I saw, saw this gentleman, Mohammed Sajid, just relaxing, smoking a cigarette in his majlis just next to the restaurant. He's a former Pakistani wrestling champion, and I could tell by the, just by the look and the way he was laying down that he was a bit of an imposing figure, and he seemed to be, he had some athletic characteristics to himself. So I, not speaking Arabic in this case, I raised my camera, pointed at it, pointed to him, and as if I was asking if it was all right to photograph him, and he nodded and said yes, so I started making more photographs. When I was all finished, I found someone who could translate for me, and I introduced myself, told him what I was doing, and asked him if he would be interested in being interviewed. I knew that he was the perfect subject, and then I would really enjoy uh, interviewing him. And he agreed to that. Saeed Ali is a Nadib living in Algiers. And he first started calling the Nedbed, which is a tribal war cry, when he was uh, 16 or 17 years old. He's not, which he's been doing that for more than 60 years now. He lives near the base of these mountains, and he's a very strong individual as well. One of the funny things, and one of the things I like about him the most, is we have this greeting whenever we meet each other. We shake hands, he starts to tug on my hand, shakes it up and down, and then I start pulling on his hand. So we do a little bit of hand wrestling before we get down to, down to business here. So I wanted to take him out into an environment that showed some strength and some history to it. The, there was another photo of me photographing with a light stand, and that's from this scene as well. And you can see, I didn't want him to be outside the line of the mountain, so I just moved, moved him around a bit until he was in the right position. And you can see where here the light hits the ground, so there's that light coming up from below, illuminating him. Now, Um Muhammad, this was not an easy photograph to make. It may look simple, but trying to find the right location to photograph her was difficult. She didn't want to be photographed in the house. There was nothing outside near her house that was interesting or inviting to me. So I looked down her street and saw this wall and this doorway, which I thought had a nice pattern to it, and this cacti. And I thought, well, let's go down and look. Let's see if this is going to make be able to be a proper setting for a photograph. I had to dig up some carpet, move a lot of litter, fill the hole back in where the carpet was, and broom it smooth. And fortunately enough, it did make a nice photograph. There's, an, there's enough color here with her dress, the cacti up here, the wall painted. There's enough color here where it, it made it interesting enough to me. I like the fact that she has her left hand on her hip. 
her right hand on her thigh, and her body stance shows some strength and not aggressiveness per se, but uh, something that has a lot of fortitude to it. Now, the last four photographs I'm going to show you are of Aisha, Fatima, and Miriam. And we are very grateful to these three women because they opened a lot of doors for us to photograph other women for the book. It was very important to me from the beginning to have as many women in the, in the book as possible to show their uh, contribution to society here in the UAE, what they did for work, what they did for uh, uh, hobbies, and how they held the families together. The story behind this, Anna was photographing or interviewing another lady, a uh, former farmer in Algier, just a couple blocks away from this location. This lady didn't want to be photographed. So after a few minutes, I told Anna that I was going to go walk around the neighborhood, see what I can find. There's always a photograph somewhere. And walking around for about 10 minutes, I looked down a side street and I saw these women sitting on a bench. And I thought, well, let's go see what this is all about. And the closer I got, the, the brighter their colored dresses became. So when I got there, I was able to find one of their granddaughters to help me interpret and introduce myself. And once I did, they agreed to be photographed. Now, these were the first women that we were able to photograph. Anna had been turned down for a month or more by other women who didn't want to be photographed. So when this happened, I was very happy. I spent about 10 or 15 minutes of photographing them, which they come out to this bench area every day around four o'clock. They have tea or coffee, they have sweets, grandkids, children come up, talk to them, play. People drive by, say hello. Other people come by and sit down and chat with them. This happens every day. So it's a nice little communal program. And the women have known each other since the 1970s. They've all been friends. So once I made the photographs, I went back to where Anna was interviewing the lady. And once she was done, I said, Anna, you have to see these photographs. You have to come down. These women are willing to be interviewed by you for the book. So look at, look at this picture. So we went down. She did a little bit of an interview. And during this time, I asked Fatima, who is the lady right here in the center, I asked her how many dresses she had. And she says, well, I probably have more than 60. So my immediate thought was after this book is finished, I want to do another book of her with wearing all her dresses. Um, once Anna was finished with the first interview, we came back several times after this. We went back to the lady that Anna had previously interviewed and showed her this photograph. And for some reason... She then had to be in the book. She said, yes, you can make my photograph. After that, Anna took prints of these three ladies on other assignments, on other, on other interviews. And once she showed the picture to the other women, they all agreed to be photographed. So I'm very thankful to these three ladies for what door they were able to open for us.
Gotta love those ladies. So thank you very much. We want to thank the RAC government. We want to thank uh, the Casme Foundation, uh, Kate Glasner Brainerd Design, and Medina Publishing for their involvement with this project. And I want to thank NYU as well for inviting us to for this talk tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. <laughs>